0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 13 of her story. This is Cassidy Reed. And today I'm talking with Mara Gibson. Mara is an associate professor of composition at Louisiana State University, so I'm really excited for her to be on the show. In this episode, we talk about composition, we talk about her career, and we talk about how to promote more female composers in the field. So I'm really excited for you all to listen to this episode and check it out. Please make sure you are liking and sharing this episode with your friends. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, feel free to DM me on any of the social media accounts or you can email me at musicherstorypod at gmail.com
1: Mara Gibson, I'm a composer. I am an associate professor at Louisiana State University, and I've been there for about three years.
0: Mara, what got you into music in the first place? What sparked your interest when you were a kid?
1: That's a great question. Apparently, I, starting at a very young age, like three or four, would lock myself in my room and listen to records. That dates me a little bit, (laughs) but I mean, for real records. So I always had a love of music. Neither of my parents were musical, but my great grandfather was, and he had had an orchestra in his backyard. It's just a community orchestra. Not that I spent a lot of time with him, but that was sort of the the lineage of, of music I think came through him. When I was, I guess about five, I started taking piano lessons and I composed really right off. I mean, I remember writing little songs. In fact, my parents moved from the house that we grew up in to their retirement house recently. And my mom discovered all of these manuscripts that I wrote. Like, you know, there was one that's titled The Duck or it was just like (laughs) kind of crazy stuff. But yeah, I didn't formally study composition until much much later, but piano was my instrument and I loved it. I I knew that I didn't particularly like being a performer from a from from the onset pretty much, but I did really really love to listen. I loved to write songs at the piano. In fact, in high school, I I wrote I started writing folk songs, and that sort of led me into the world of, of writing classical music, believe it or not. But I took piano consistently all the way through, and I even took band for a couple of years. I played the clarinet, but piano was my main instrument. And, and yeah. you know, towards the end of high school, I was, you know, I was a strong player. I was not, you know, wanting to be a, a piano major, but, you know, I was, I was working on all the repertoire. I had a wonderful teacher in high school, Marjorie Mitchell, who recently passed away. Mm. She was a, just an incredible female image of music. I mean, she was just, she was one of the first concert pianists in the 50s to really make it and record, and she, she just was a real influence on me. She was really wonderful, great role model for me to look up to. I was terrified of her, of course, but, <laughs> but she was a great role model. And then in, in high school, I did, as I mentioned, I, I wrote some songs and I got into music theory. We had, I went to a, a friend's school and so we had this really great music teacher by the name of John Durf. who's actually a jazz trumpeter mm-hmm. and he taught a music theory class, I guess it was my eighth grade year, and I I got really into it, and that's, I guess, when I started dabbling with writing. We wrote this one group composition, it was called Nuclear Age, and it was, we wrote it on an eight-track player, it was a lot of fun, I think I still have it somewhere, it's um, again, very dated, but anyway, it was, it, you know, I guess it was the, the combination of those things, and then in high school, like I said, I started writing songs and you know, really didn't know what was gonna happen with the songs and the piano the classical piano and, you know, I, I had I knew I wanted to do something in music, but I didn't know how it was all gonna fit together. Mm-hmm. I also knew that I wanted to go to a liberal arts school and so I was really just looking for liberal arts schools. I didn't look to a conservatory and and frankly I think had I gone to a conservatory I wouldn't be in music Mm. Um, I really needed that I needed to come to it in in a more open way and so I ended up going to Bennington College and it was the perfect place for me I mean it really allowed me to hone in on what I wanted to do musically but also in lots lots of other areas so Bennington you're you're required to touch on five of the seven areas that they offer. And then within that you can major. And so I ended up focusing on music, literature, and ceramics were my three. I was a double major, piano performance and composition. That really just came out of my first semester there. We had a composition class. Well, I mean, Bennington's approach to music was very unique we learned basically three components to music, performance, improvisation, and composition. So it was not your typical like music theory sequence. I had to, I had had a lot of that, but I had to kind of get that through other means. So I was in an improv class all the way through. I was in composition all the way through and performance all the way through. And that was true if you were a composition major or an improvisation major. So that was pretty, Great. And in my composition class, my first year, I wrote several pieces and that's when I really got the bug. I had some great teachers, you know, at Bennington, we could get performances. And so it was just a really, really rewarding for me at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I continued to do music uh, all the way through college. And I knew I wanted to go to grad school in composition. I, I, I knew that pretty early on, like probably by my second year. But I went to a couple of different schools because, well, for one, Bennington was really expensive. It is really expensive. Mm-hmm. And so in order to offset some of the expense, I took some classes and did some things at other schools and realizing that I'm not, I wasn't a typical music major. I tried to get a lot of the more traditional curriculum through other schools. So I went to London College of Music for a semester Mm -hmm. and I went to um, Loyola University in New Orleans for a semester. And again, I got a lot of the ear training, the theory, those kinds of things. I mean, still didn't like ever get a, a true sequence of it. But I was able to kind of piece things together, and then by the time I got to grad school, I was the crazy, crazy composer who wanted to take counterpoint and all these things <laughs> that everybody else was like, "I'm done with, I'm ready to just go into composition, you know, so I came at it sort of backwards, yeah, but it worked for me, and that was really that that was just my path uh I took two years off after undergrad and I lived in North Carolina and I taught piano. I learned quickly that if I was willing to drive to people's homes, I could get a very robust studio very quickly mm-hmm. and I did. I had about 40 students and I you know it was that's what I did. I also did some some studying at Duke University. I audited some classes there. I was in their graduate seminar. So I was continuing to write and build my portfolio. And then in 1996, I went to SUNY Buffalo.
0: Yeah, this Buffalo.
1: Was, I'm yeah. So- <laughs> this was a big, um, are, do you know Buffalo? Are you from there?
0: I'm from the Buffalo area, yes.
1: Excellent. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so you know about Lake Effect Snow. <laughs>
0: yes, 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 yes.
1: <laughs> well, it was a toss up for me. My dream school was Brandeis and I got in, but I got more money in Buffalo. And Mm -hmm. so I ended up opting for Buffalo. It's funny because Brandeis and Boston has come into my life many, many more times. It's like, it's just this, it's the city that won't leave me alone. I can talk about that in a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I went to Buffalo and it was a great place for me. I had some wonderful teachers. I did a lot of summer programs. I did, I went to Darmstadt one summer. That was an incredible experience. I met Lakeman. I met Georgie Kurtog. You know, I'm still in touch with a lot of the people that I was in graduate school with there. Really, it was a wonderful program. June and Buffalo took place there, so as part of my TA, I learned how to run a festival, which uh, ended up being a very useful skill. I ran a workshop, a composition workshop at UMKC when I was there for eight years. And I'm hoping to start something similar at LSU in the next few years, because it's just a great way to recruit. And, and you know, frankly, particularly with high school students, it's sort of an untapped market. There's There, yeah. there are a few places, but not a whole lot of places that offer composition instruction to high schoolers and oh yeah yeah part of that is that we don't learn that we want to be composers until later but you know once you open that up it's it's incredible how (laughs) how many bite so to speak yeah yeah I think um,
0: that's one of the issues that I've seen my private teacher growing up on trumpet he used to make me Even though I was, quote unquote, classically trained trumpet player, he had me working on composing things and improvising and all sorts of things like that on my instrument because he said, you know, these are skills that you should know and you should have whether you want to major in composition or not. So, yeah, I think we need to encourage more students to at least explore composition because I feel like we'd have a lot more people majoring in composition if there were programs like you were describing for high schoolers. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, and even, even if they don't go on to major in composition, I, I mean, I, I have a huge um, population of composition, uh, composition students that are music ed majors at LSU, mm-hmm. and to me, that's just so interesting because that's a skill that they can definitely take to the classroom that's yeah. very different from anything they're getting in their music education curriculum. It's just a creative approach to, you know, how to make music, so... I, I find that really fun. I find it really fun to teach non-composition non majors, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then, let's see. After Buffalo, I moved down to New Orleans, and I taught, had a ton of adjunct jobs. I was teaching at Tulane, Loyola, Southeastern, NOCA. I, I don't know. I was all over the place. One time, I remember one semester, I was teaching six classes at three different universities, and it was just insane. But it was good, I learned very quickly how to teach and on the college level, and it was, it was good. I, I continued to write, and a couple years after, decided to go to, to the Banff Center for a residency. That was really invigorating because it was really the first dedicated time when I wasn't working or teaching that I could just dedicate to my composition. And I met I met so many people there, so many musicians. I'm actually still in touch with many of them because mm-hmm. it, it's just an environment like that. I mean, residencies, they fuel me. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. only been on a total of three of them, but some of them have been the most profound experiences I've, I've ever had just because you're away, you know, and you can, yeah. you can really dive into your work and your surroundings and meet some just interesting, interesting people. Mm -hmm. After New Orleans, I moved up to Kansas City, and I started teaching at UMKC. I did a lot of adjunct there at first, but then UMKC became my main job. And I actually worked a lot in arts administration, so I was the director of the community music program there. So a lot of my skills as a piano teacher, I was able to draw on there and my love of teaching kids as well. Yes, And then that sort of morphed into me teaching composition and gradually my position morphed into teaching more composition at UMKC. And then in 2017, this uh, opportunity at LSU came about and it was just a, it was an opportune time. I was in a position at UMKC that was a three-year renewal, and there was future, but it wasn't tenure track, and I was really, I, you know, have always wanted a tenure track position, obviously, and so this opportunity came about, and I went for it. It was a visiting, but you know, I knew that it was gonna turn into something permanent. I had some connections at LSU. Like when I was in June of Buffalo, I met several musicians. In fact, Seth Orgel, who's the horn professor here is a good friend of mine. I've known, you know, for 20 some years. So there were just a lot of a lot of things that felt very right about it, but it was definitely a scary leap. You know, moving halfway across the country and not necessarily knowing what is next, but it was one of those. It, it, it was one of those decisions that I feel like the universe was giving me a nudge. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it was. It turned out to be the best decision I've ever made. I'm. I couldn't be happier teaching at LSU. I'm teaching composition. I'm running a studio. I'm really have the opportunity to build a program. I have wonderful colleagues. I'm, you know, getting very well supported in terms of my composition. So it's just been, it's been really great and hopefully will result in in tenure soon. So
0: (laughs) yeah, that's awesome. While you were talking a little bit, I I thought of a few questions that I wanted to ask you. Obviously being a female composer, you are in a minority as -hmm. far as programming is with composition. So were the programs that you were a part of as a student at the collegiate level, were were they very diverse or did you feel like you were often the only or what was the vibe there for Mm -hmm. those programs? Well, at
1: Bennington, it was pretty diverse. That's partially because it's Bennington and Bennington used to be an all-girls school. So it was pretty diverse. Once I got to graduate school, though, I very quickly learned that I was in the minority. There were two of us studying composition at uh, in my program and I mean that UB has a huge composition program Mm -hmm. so that was that was a wake up and it was something that I it really bothered me at the time but it was something I didn't talk about because I knew that if I focused on it too much I would lose I would get I would lose you know my motivation to do it you know I really (coughs) grappled with you know, being outspoken about it, but I felt like that using that energy somehow would take away from me writing music. And it wasn't until I wrote Skirt and Pants, Why Not Both, that I really was able to fully disclose and share some of those experiences.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that? Mara wrote an article on New Music USA.org, and it's called Skirt or Pants, How About Both? where she talks about gender relations and classical music. So can you delve a little bit into your research in this article that you wrote?
1: Well, actually, I got the idea shortly after Christy Kuster, Kuster's article that she wrote in the New York Times. And it really struck me that, you know, I mean, that this is just not talked about. Uh, there's, you know, I think with composition, there tends to be this master mentality of teaching that mm-hmm. goes hand in hand with very much of the patriarchy. So there's, there's just a lot of things. I mean, I, I still, to this day, have not had a female composition teacher.
0: Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> you know, when I was at UMKC, there were two of us, Chen Yi and I, which was really unusual. And, you know, what's even more unusual is I would say more than half of my studio at LSU is female. Mm. So we are seeing a trend and it is changing, but yeah, I mean, I think some of my most difficult experiences came through some of those interactions with very, I don't know how to phrase this nicely, (laughs) very opinionated, you know, white men and yeah. so really hard to find your own identity in that when they're really and, and particularly when I was in school there really weren't that many females in the field it's it's changed a lot and you know the the one other person that was in graduate school with me and I are very close friends because I think we sort of stuck together through it yeah. um, and we created our own network for ourselves.
0: I have a follow-up question to that. So you were talking about there really wasn't a whole lot of female composers when you were in college and things. So what sort of, besides your other colleague in your program, what sort of support systems did you have to look for for motivation or inspiration? Are there any particular female composers that you were looking into or you were studying or you were listening to Mm -hmm. to feel that sense of community?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Betsy Jolas came to Bennington when I was a senior. And in fact, I went over to France and studied during her summer program the summer after I graduated. And so she was one of the first people that I really looked to. And then over the course of of my time in Buffalo, I came across people like Augusta Reed Thomas, um, who has turned out to be one of my heroes. <laughs> she actually is the person that convinced me to write my first large-scale orchestra piece in, in the cab of a, in a taxi cab in Bangkok of all places, but that's a whole other story. So I did seek out these people, but I still primarily had, you know, my my formal teachers were um, were males.
0: Yeah, I know for the band world isn't it- the most composition wise it is not the most diverse by any means just based upon what gets played and what gets put in state manuals and things that people follow like the Bible which I totally <laughs> disagree with <laughs> but my issue often is trying to find works by female composers that are for you know particular levels especially at the middle school level and it's because the state manuals really only put like, no female composers or composers of color in their manuals. And I feel like a lot of band directors strictly follow that manual when it comes to selecting repertoire for their ensembles. I actually went through, so I'm from New York State. Obviously, I teach in New York State. I went through New York State's manual, their state manual. I went through the the large ensemble, the band section and I counted how many female composers were in that manual. And there were a few hundred male composers and they only ended up being five female composers. Wow. Listed, and wow. there are six levels. So they basically were like, oh, we're just gonna have the one token, the token. Composer yeah. for every level. And the majority of the pieces listed were by Anne McGinty and that was it.
1: Right. Well, are you aware of Rob Deemer's project Diversity. Yes, composer
0: diversity.com. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. He's done some incredible work in that arena. And he's, you know, he's actually created spreadsheets so you can search by an area, a geographic area in the country mm-hmm. if you want a female composer or if you want an African American composer. I mean, it, it, it makes it a lot more accessible. It's really amazing what he's done.
0: Yeah. I actually met with him. We had a kind of Skype call with him and some of the other secondary teachers in my district, and we talked about this whole thing, and he, he walked us through the database and everything because I teach in a very large and very diverse school district, and so one of our goals as a department is to start programming more music by uh, women and people of color and the LGBTQ community. So, because that representation piece for our students is so important. And I don't want Absolutely. my students to think that the only composers out there are old white guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's kind of like my motivation behind it is just to have my students be able to see hey, I can write music if I want to, or I can perform on this instrument if I want to. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that is a really great resource. And a lot of people don't know about it. So I keep pushing it. in like every interview, if somebody starts talking about composition, I'm like, composerdiversity.com. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They should sponsor me.
1: Yeah, they should. (laughs) And Rob is just a great guy all around.
0: He's a very nice guy. So another question for you I have is how can, besides obviously like the composerdiversity.com is a great resource, but how do you think we can support more female composers in the field? Because I think one of the biggest issues is women are writing music, but their music isn't getting played. So mm-hmm. do you have any sort of ideas as to how we can support more female composers in the field? Well, I think the
1: biggest issue is that we don't teach through the history of music, the history of female composers. I think oh, yeah. that that's a huge part of it. In fact, my good friend Garrett Schumann is in the process of writing an anthology that's more inclusive of not just women, but everybody, where he's going through the music theory curriculum, and trying to create a more balanced set of of examples so that they're not by the same <laughs> dead white men
0: That's amazing. Um, and
1: so that's I mean I think it's things like that that will help us long term now we're not going to see the results of that for some time but I think having concerts dedicated to women is a way to do it I mean I know some people feel very mixed about that like you know well <laughs> it, it why separate them out? Well, I mean, you know, for exactly the same reason that we've, you know, we've talked about, it's, we've been isolated. And, you know, some people, I guess, look down on the fact that female composer concert is, you know, not the same as a, as a concert, you know, with everybody, but I think it helps elevate us and it helps put us on par and put us on the map with uh, other composers, you know, I think schools can be a lot more open-minded in terms of or committed to accepting a certain number of female composers, male. You know, I mean, we can we can do that. We can diversify, um, but I think the real the biggest challenge is is what we're what we're given in history. I think we need to find a way to expose that you know women were writing music you know like Hildegard way back when and you need to be learning about that
0: yeah i i think i learned looking back at my music history classes because i just graduated from my undergrad not this spring, but the spring before, so it's very fresh in my brain. <laughs> I only learned about a handful. I learned about Hildegard, learned about Clara Schumann, but not many others after that. So yeah, yeah I, I I love the fact that that anthology is being written because yeah, I we don't focus on it, and what irritates me is that music as a subject is not held to certain you know national or state standards. It doesn't have to have this specific curriculum and I understand that we need to have students learning about certain composers that did have a great impact on music history, but there's no one saying oh this day you have to teach this or this you have to teach that. Professors and teachers in K-12 education in music for the most part, are in full control of the curriculum that they are giving their students. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people are fully either committed to trying to teach kids about more diverse people in music, or they, they were never taught that themselves. And so they're just teaching what they know and what they were taught. And so I think that teachers need to have a real commitment to making those changes in order for those things to happen, because that is a Absolutely. major issue. I agree with you.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree.
0: You were talking about doing the all-female composer concert. And actually, my friend Madeline and I, she was my she's my first interviewee that I did. She was on my episode two. We were talking about how we're going to try to do that with our middle schoolers this year. Fingers crossed if we are not virtually teaching because of COVID. We we're trying to do an all female concert. She actually found a piece that's a solo saxophone concerto type vibe but she's a saxophone player but it's with middle school band which is like really hard to find in the first place yeah and by a female composer she found that piece she's like we're doing it i found it we're doing it now <laughs> so yeah we're we're trying to do that sort of thing and i've made it a commitment to make sure that i have for every concert at least one piece written by a female composer or a composer of color because that's excellent yeah because if you can just do that that's stepping in that right direction Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people like to choose repertoire for concerts based upon a theme and oftentimes i see like their theme is you know i don't know the circle of life or whatever it is (laughs) something deep and makes you think, I guess. But they'll pick something like that, that's so ethereal, and then they'll just have the same composers over and over and over again. Like Tchaikovsky, right. and Mackie, and yep. Mislanka, which are all great composers, and I know I'm like sticking with the band world right now, but that's what I know. But they're all great composers, right? But that's their entire concert over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. Are you familiar with Alex Shapiro at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. so she's done a lot with sort of flex pieces for middle school band and, and, and a little later too. And she actually is a part of a group that I've been participating in since COVID. It's called the Creative Repertoire Initiative. And it's pretty much dedicated to a creative repertoire that we can do in COVID, right? So so perhaps yeah. it's it's uh, unusually balanced middle school bands or something that has more flexible instrumentation. But I'm just, I'm so impressed with the work that that group has done. Yeah. And I and I do think DNA is getting better. I think they've, two years ago, they started having a, a like a round table for female composers. So I think, you know, like anything, it's just, it's going to take time, but every little step, every band director that is making a commitment to programming, you know, one piece by a female and or person of color, you know, is making a huge difference. For sure. Because the kids that are playing in those bands, you know, they, they identify with that, you know, they see themselves in that. And if, if you, Look like them, then there there is this aha moment where I could be that.
0: Yeah, I actually sat down and had a conversation with some of my students pre-COVID about all of these issues, and I and I told them I said I had I did not play a piece by a female composer that I remember until I was in college, Mm -hmm. and it was one. I don't think I ever played a piece by a composer of color until maybe I was in college. I had one female band director, my seventh grade band director. And so I was having these conversations with these kids because I replaced a woman with my job. So these kids have had a female band director, some of them all the way, four through 12. Wow. And, and yeah, and I told them like, you know, that's a rarity, right? They don't realize that. They don't realize that um, only 15% of high school band directors are women. And so it's kind of funny to have those conversations with them, but they, a lot of them have never played a piece by a female composer or a composer of color and the majority of my band is female. And I have a very high people of color population in my band as well. So they're, nev- they're not seeing themselves reflected in what we're doing in the class. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to them about that. And when, when they sat there and thought about it, they realized the tremendous impact that it's had on them. Yes. May not actively be thinking about that day-to-day in rehearsal, but when we start to have those conversations, they're like, yeah, wait a minute. Why, why aren't we playing stuff like this? Wait, this exists? Right, right. <laughs> People don't even know it exists.
1: Yeah, well that's great that you're doing that. Really, it's fantastic.
0: Thanks, and I have another question for you. So as a composition professor at, you know, LSU is a pretty big university, and you talked about how you have a very high female population of student composers that are your students. So how do you support your students who look like you and identify like you or don't look like you and don't identify with you? Do you have those conversations with them? How do you prepare them for the real world and what that's going to look like for them? Right. Well, we teaching
1: composition kind of happens in three different ways. I have private lessons with each of my students. We have some group lessons and then we have a weekly forum that we all come together on. And in those forums, I bring people, performers, visiting composers, publicists, librarians from symphonies, any, any kind of person that might be of a resource for the composers. And so in those meetings, I am committed to really showing a diverse group. So, and, and we do have one, have one at LSU. I mean, I, I can't say, I haven't been here long enough to say that it's because of me, you know, but cause I came in and there were 50% women and yeah. that's just unusual. But I think it is, it's also really empowering for those women in the program, I would say. And yeah, I mean, I just, I guess to answer your question, we do a lot of those, I dedicate a lot of those forums to bringing in people that are different, you know, from different backgrounds culturally that, that has helped diversify at least what we talk about. I mean, I, we had Omar Thomas come last spring before COVID. That was really wonderful. I've even brought in popular musicians because we do have, we have an ENDM program at LSU, which complements composition. And and so we sometimes see an overlap and, and things like that. So
0: that's really cool. Yeah. I don't feel like a lot of places are doing that either. Just from what I've seen with some composition programs, a lot of the guests that I've seen being brought in are, you know, you're still stereotypical white men all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that's, a bad thing necessarily if this person is you know has an impact on what the field looks like today but if everyone you're bringing in looks exactly the same i feel like you need to question what your motive is there you know
1: absolutely and and you know i mean now that we are doing so much more on zoom it's an opportunity to do even more of that i think because you know we don't even have to do it in person we can just do it virtually
0: yeah, I completely agree. And another thing that I think is really great because I feel like some schools have a a sense of they they kind of isolate the composition program from the rest of the majors or it's one of the things that drives me nuts about music schools is that everyone's in kind of their own little bubble depending on their right. major and we don't really encourage crossing between majors and stuff. And I know you talked about how you have a lot of music education students that are taking composition classes, which I think is amazing because that's a great skill to have. But I think it's also really important that we're encouraging student groups, whether they're chamber groups or large ensembles to be playing the music of student composers as much as they can because some schools just do a new music concert and they have it like once a year and that's the only time student compositions get played and I feel like there needs to be more of an encouragement of this creativity creating music and having it actively be played by your peers so you're getting that experience and you're getting that feedback while you're still in school and I feel like more institutions need to encourage that as well.
1: Right. Well, we, we also have a what we call a really, really new music marathon every semester, which is exactly that. It's all the student pieces, but they go out and, and find the, the student performers from the School of Music. But additionally, I've done a couple of collaborations with the Collaborative Piano Department and the Vocal Studies Department here, where we've brought in a guest poet and... The poet has selected a handful of poems that he or she would like sort of to pull from. And then we pair each composer with a singer and a pianist. And over the course of the semester, they set that piece, they set that text, that poem to music. And that has been one of the most successful projects that we've had here. I've had so many singers come up to me and say, you know. It is just so cool to be able to ask the composer what he or she meant in this, in this phrase. You know, we don't get to be, we don't get to interact with the composer very often. And it's, it's something that I've decided we're doing every year. It's this program, we'll bring in a different poet each time. And, you know, I, I'd love to see it grow into something even bigger, you know, where it's maybe maybe one semester we pair up with the tuba studio and every composer writes for tuba. Maybe one semester we build an ensemble. Everybody writes for that ensemble because, you know, it is, you're absolutely right, a different process when students are living, breathing new music, you know, as, as if like new music, fresh ink on the page, new music, you know, as it is being, as it's being conceived. And, it does a lot to help demystify, I think, the ivory tower of the composer in a way, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it, the creative process is, you know, for some people it, it, it is like Amadeus, <laughs> but most of us it isn't. Most of us, it doesn't happen that way. And so I think it just kind of brings things down to a much more
0: real level. That's great. I completely agree. Okay, so my final question for you. It's a little more of a deep thought sort of question. Picture your younger self, you know, playing piano and everything and wanting to be a composition major and pursue that the collegiate and professional level. Do you have any advice for someone who wants to do what you do that looks like you? Any sort of advice, encouragement, support, resources, anything for female composers that want to succeed in the field?
1: First and foremost, love your music. Love what you write. Don't write music that you don't love. I say that to all my students, so that's not really a female-specific thing, Mm -hmm. but I think it's an important thing for female composers in particular to be dedicated to because, you know, there are still composition teachers that churn out certain composers that sound like them you know and so I think having maintaining your own voice is important and that's that's something that I have that I had that conversation with my composition students on the first day is you know I'm not here to tell you what to write I will never tell you to change a note what I am here to do is to challenge you And to help you find your voice. And if I see that you're uncomfortable with something, I'm probably going to push you more towards that uncomfortable thing so that you have a bigger toolkit as a consequence to make choices in your music.
0: Mm -hmm. Everybody should love what they write if that's, you know, authentically them. All right, Mara, I want to thank you so much for being on and talking with us. I think We covered a lot of ground and I think we've we've provided some resources for people that may need some help in diversifying their repertoire as well. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.